Hello, hello. This is the reality of reality, and I am Aliza Rosen, a longtime producer and development executive in unscripted television. Every week on the podcast, I interview all kinds of people in all facets of the reality TV business. Today, you are in for a real treat. You've probably heard of a little show called Undercover Boss. How about Project Runway? Well, I'm talking to the guys who made those shows, and in the case of Project Runway, uh, one of them actually created it. I'm really excited to welcome Uber producers Eli Holtzman and Aaron Sedman to the podcast. Both started out as movie guys and kind of just fell into reality TV when it was just starting. And they both recently left really big jobs with a very big international production company called All Three Media. And they started their own independent shop called the Intellectual Property Corporation. They spent three years making a premium documentary called The 7-5. It's about a corrupt New York police precinct, and it's now being made into a feature film. They've got lots of great stories, including a few gems involving none other than Harvey Weinstein. And we had so much fun talking, we ended up going on for more than two hours. So I divided up the podcast into two parts, part one today, and part two is coming next week. Go. No, We're starting. Start yeah. now. Okay, welcome, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I say everything twice. Thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you. I'm Thanks so for having glad, us. I'm so glad you guys are here. Um, so the quick the quick background, I always like to say like how we're all connected. And it's a it's a loose connection on this one, but but nonetheless a quick connection. So Eli and I met like six months ago in your office at All Three Media. That's right. Felt we had the New York Bond. That's uh, it, six months old. Yeah, it's it's a long you guys deep go way friend. back. We do. <laughs> yeah. And Aaron to about ten minutes ago now. Yeah. We met outside. I basically accosted them both and said, You gotta do my podcast. Which in Hollywood terms I think makes us all now best friends. I I, I absolutely. <laughs> all right, good. So I wanna get into to the to the whole IP Corporation. Very excited to talk about it. I want to go back a little bit. We started to talk a little bit about how you guys met. So, so you can sort of simultaneously give me the background on where you started, how you went apart, and how you came together. It's kind of like a beautiful romance, really. Yeah, like, like the, a hot sex scene. It's the love affair of it's the great love affair of my life. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we're Hollywood uh, husband and husband. Like Second that. only to my first divorce. Yeah. And and so you know who's speaking the really cool voice is me, Eli, and the other voice. Smart, funny guy is That's Eli. Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We Aaron and I go back to uh, um, uh, Miramax Films together. We both got our start in the film business, which is, uh, I think we got into entertainment because we loved, we loved the movies. Um, and uh, we worked at Miramax in New York in the 90s, which is an incredible, We were cool assistants yeah. in the cubicles. We were, yeah. To the Weinsteins? Uh, to, to the Weinsteins, to their lieutenants. At different times, we worked for any number of the different people there. And, you know, sort of a, a who's who of the Miramax diaspora that's now all over town um, and on all the sort of movies that got made back then. Right, is so it I diaspora know, or is it diaspora? diaspora? That's very non-Jewish. Can you, can you <laughs> We're not diaspora. editing that. Huh? Is that like calling, it's diaspora. Is that like calling an advertisement an advertisement? Or where are we from? Yeah, yeah. you're British. What's happening? Is it bona fides or is it bona fides? <laughs> It's bona fide. Okay. Um, I know we're not naming names. No, I'm but going since... back in my shell. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, no, we're shaming yeah. you. Aaron wasn't a very good assistant. Well, I'm assuming he was the worst. What's the best Weinstein story? We have to hear just something juicy that won't get us in trouble. Ooh, Harvey once ran into this burning building and saved these orphans. And it <laughs> He's was such a good the person. Best story. <laughs> and then ever. Bob went in to save him. And yeah. It was sort of an was... amazing moment of the those two brothers coming together. They it's love beautiful. Each other. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. We're not. You know, ordinarily I would never tell a story like that at a school, <laughs> but you know, we can let our hair down in here. They really are good people. That's Great. what I've heard. They're they're amazing. They um, medicated. They're incredible. <laughs> they, uh, we. I once went. I was Harvey's assistant, and I didn't know that if you get if you're congested and you fly, that it can make you go deaf and be really painful. And there was a board meeting. Uh, Is that in, true? Uh huh. In Anaheim, <laughs> Florida, and the brothers never flew together, but on this occasion, this particular weekend, they did, and I flew with them. And they had an, uh, 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 the same flight attendant was always with us, and she had a great sense of humor. And I went completely deaf and was in agony, and she thought it was hilarious. And, uh, and when we got off the plane, 
they were yelling at me to do things and I just, I couldn't hear them. And I, I sort of, I said, I'm sorry, I can't hear what you're saying. And Bob said, yeah, come sit between us. We'll clean out your fucking ears. And they, uh, they drove, they had their car take them to like, you know, some Rite Aid in Anaheim, not Anaheim, was it Florida? What's the one in Florida? Disneyland, Orlando, Orlando. sorry, Orlando, Florida. Um, they had their driver take us to some like, and then they had like an argument in front of me in the aisle of this place about which antihistamine I should take. Um, and That's then they sweet. went off. That's very adorable, sweet. actually. <laughs> they took so, care of you. They took care of me. Are you still, did you get all your hearing back? Or? I can hear pretty well. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you're talking to the right ear? Or? Please, yeah. Wow, that's a good story. And by the way, very good imitation. Thank you. Yeah. Great story. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> Thank great, you. great. And did they never fly together story. because they, like, if one of us dies type of thing, or it just didn't happen? I'm just curious. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Or, or just, they, you know, they, um, they, collaborate a lot but they were at that time Bob was running Dimension Films Harvey was running Miramax and a lot of times they were sort of dividing and conquering and they were together at the office um, but rarely taking the same trips together so when you guys were assistants were you friends where it was like you were in the trenches together like what was the relationship at that point Aaron wanted to be my friend but I was like kind <laughs> of ambi- I was the, like, he's okay the, 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 a- the actual truth is the uh I was working, it was like my first week, and I didn't know how to do anything. <laughs> and I actually wasn't a great assistant, that is true. Um, and I was trying to get a FedEx package out. I didn't know how to like type the label or write the letter or anything. And Eli's number two was a woman named Barbara Schneeweiss, and she was helping me out. And Eli got a little bit bent out of shape about the fact that she was helping me instead of him. And the first time I met Eli, he comes trudging down the hallway and he's like, oh, it's great that she's helping you, but I need her right now. And she was like, I have to go. And she like turned. And that was my first interaction with Eli Holzman. That's and we've totally been best friends ever since. That's totally true. That is totally true. Yeah. Where's Barbara now? Barbara is at uh, is still at Weinstein still Company, at the Weinstein overseeing Company. Project Runway and all their other shows. So I know you ended up, Aaron, you ended up leaving Weinstein, but you, Eli, you stayed and rose up to the ranks. So tell me the quick sort of ascent. I went from Harvey's um, desk to uh, being a junior film executive and then got sent to L.A. to, to uh, help start the, the, the company's TV business. Um, they had hired a guy named Billy Campbell, who had been Les Moonves' head of drama. He was Nina Tassler's boss and to be the head of TV. And I was going to be sort of Miramax to his TV. And that was in 98. And we had a couple things. We had an overall deal with... Um, Kevin Smith and an overall deal with Ke- uh, Kevin Williamson, and we had a Clerks animated series and a, and a, the Kevin Williamson's drama following Dawson's Creek called Wasteland, and the division was really created to get those shows made and then you know keep going. So you were inscripted, fully scripted, and then Project Runway happened. Project Greenlight actually, Project and Greenlight. it was funny. Th- Love when I that first, show. Thank you. When oh, I first got to um, L.A., my first week. I went to a dinner party at my best friend's big sister's house, and she was a school teacher in Silver Lake. And at the dinner party was some guy sitting next to me, a disgruntled filmmaker working in like web design or something. And he, to give him credit, he like convinced me that he should be making doing all the animation. He was like, "Screw film, film, film Roman with the, you know, yeah, The Simpsons is fine, but I'll make your Clerks animated series for ABC amazing." And I fell for it and agreed to like buy him an expensive dinner on my expense account. And at that dinner, he he like groused and said, hey, whatever they spend making that real world, they should get you know, kidding out the house for that. Give me that money and make my movie. and We'll make a show about that. And I was like, man, that's a really good idea because I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, the two of us wound up writing up this treatment together uh, for a reality show that would follow the making of a film. And I was a movie nerd and I'd just been doing nothing but working at Miramax in, in movies. So... That, that was exciting to me. And I went to my boss, Billy Campbell, really excited. And I pitched him the show. And he was like, looked at me like I was an idiot. And he was like, I can't sell that. And Was that even before Survivor? Like, was that? Yeah. So this was like early, early. Early, early. It was, this is around, this is around 99. Yeah. 98, 99. Right. 98, really, because I'd just gotten there. And actually, Billy, because Billy was, came out of CBS drama, Gen Maynard was a drama executive at CBS and the two of us became friends. And I remember going to like lunch or dinner with Gen and he was describing this passion project of his about these people on an island. And I was <laughs> describing my like people making a movie. Um, a, a, a fellow 
assistant friend who had been Patrick Weitzel's assistant when I was Harvey's assistant, so he used to talk on the phone all the time, was a guy named Kent Cabana. And Kent had become, had gotten promoted to be the head of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's production company when Goodwill Hunting got made. Um, and he came to see me because we were both two junior executives with not a lot to do. And I shared this um, movie making idea with him, not because I knew anything about packaging, but just, you know, out of enthusiasm. And he got excited about it. And then he called me later that day and said, you know, Chris Moore really likes this. And we think Matt and Ben want to do it. And I like <laughs> tiptoed back into Billy's office. And I said, like, would it make any difference if Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were in it? And he was like, yeah, that we can sell. Amazing. And, that, and so Project Greenlight was our were my first experience of reality. And that pitch, um, we got to go see every network president. Almost every one of them tried to buy it in the room. At this at the the WB, they followed us out into the parking lot to sell us on the network and tell us how what a what a great home it would be. And I've literally that was it. That was like my greatest pitch of my life. And it was the first week in town and it's all been downhill since then. Um, that's seriously an incredible story. You're still I a, doing okay. I, I have a few questions though. So why HBO? I mean, obviously it's HBO, but you had offers from everybody. What was was that sort of the obvious choice? It was the obvious choice um, for a couple of different reasons. Matt and Ben were really sensitive to the I, to to uh, people's motivations for buying the show, and at one place, Fox. Uh, the head of the network, you know, was like, oh, I love this idea. Like in one episode, you could take the director out and show him how to pick up girls. And we were like, all right, well, that's not the <laughs> show we're here to make. And so there was a little bit of that. ABC really wanted it. And ABC actually made a really um, uh, a good offer on it. I just I, I really worried. And I'm sure some of my other colleagues, the people really making the decisions agreed that it wouldn't rate. You know, that it wasn't a broadcast show and it would get canceled. And I thought, it turned out I was wrong, but I thought it was this brilliant way to market uh, uh, a, a really inexpensive film. That the film was then going to make all this money because it had been on TV. So I was like, no, if we put it on ABC, the show will get canceled and we won't make all that movie money. Um, and so that we ultimately passed on ABC, which was, which was tough because at the time Disney owned... Uh, on Miramax. Um, I still can't see it on ABC, though. No. I, I, I mean, at all. I can't see it on any of those places. Yeah. Yeah, you know, nowadays, like it could be Netflix, Amazon. Did you watch the season, by the way? I watched a little bit of it. It was, like, a little bittersweet for me, but it, it looked really good, and I was excited, and I'm, like, really happy that it's back on the air. I have to say, I mean, I watched every season. This, I thought it was incredible. I mean, they just casted it between... Effie, who is the black producer, female producer. We met her out recently. Yeah, she, we saw I, her she needs her own show. I mean, this, she is a force. Yeah. And I was like Team Effie, but I could see those. They put who the whitest guy <laughs> director. Who with... was so uncomfortable in his own skin, and that made him the best casting. So awkward. I, I mean, the whole thing was fascinating. And he was like a throwback to an yeah. earlier era of wanting to shoot on <laughs> celluloid. <laughs> he thought he was like Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to mention about that story that I love is that in 1998, 99, it's literally your first example of how packaging is everything. Because I always say, you know, it's a great show until, you know, everyone wanted, everyone was shopping The Apprentice, but Mark Burnett got Donald Trump. It's like, unless you have that, and, and it's the same thing today. I mean, we all have the same ideas, it's you know? It's so true. It's and, so true. And that was literally, would it make a difference if Matt and Ben were involved? <laughs> and, yeah, night and day. Yeah. And, and by the way, we wouldn't have had those meetings. He was right. It worked. And I think it's... um. I think in a world of uncertainty, everybody can take, you know, feels confident about that great show with that amazing talent. Like, like, oh, I'm making this show. It's kind of a contest about making a movie. Like, people's <laughs> eyes glaze over. You're like, I'm making a show with those, like, amazing actor, writer, director, <laughs> Matt and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Like, and they're like, oh, genius. I'm sure it's going to be great. Let's but I, th I think even in, even in non-scripted, because it's like one less risky element. Like, you you don't you don't have a script. You don't necessarily have a director's brilliant vision it's just one less thing you don't necessarily have to worry about yeah and i think in that case just as an example because we're talking about it i mean those guys are really good at what they do they're smart they're really smart guys they're really passionate i mean at one point the weekend read for that thing was like a hundred and some odd scripts and ben used to read them all and he would show up to all of the every sort of every last meeting and really get was really invested in the whole process and matt was incredibly passionate he used to frustrate me to no end because he would always pick a filmmaker that i didn't think was the right one and then that I, my voice then became completely irrelevant. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, Matt's choice is great. You we'll should have watched this season. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, cool. So you And then Project Runway happened after that? Yeah. Sorry, Aaron, we'll get back to you. No, this is, I've never heard these stories before. <laughs> we optioned a show about um, a, a 
models living in an apartment to do a docu-soap. And back then there weren't a lot of those either. And there was no model show on the air. But when I called around, um, nobody was interested in buying that show. And so I thought, well, that'll be that. But Harvey kept following up with me about it relentlessly. And I thought, um, probably wrongly, that it, there wasn't enough of an interesting process in the model space, but we were doing green light. And I thought, well, the designers are more the analog of a director. And so came up with this format um, about a designer competition, knowing nothing about uh, fashion or design. Um, and that was another one. Uh, I met with a network. I won't I won't name it, um, but I had this amazing experience where they came to see me and they were like, we love um, uh, Project Greenlight. Do you have anything similar? We'd love to be in business with you. I said, yeah, as it happens, we've just put into development this great show. I think it's perfect for you. I described it to them. They said, that's great. Can you send it to us? And the first ever write-up of the show was me sending it to that um, to that person. And I never heard back. So I like sent an email to follow up like a week or two later crickets i call no return call um at that point i'm like all right well pass great no problem i get it and then like two months after that the junior person in the meeting calls and is like hey we're passing i'm like yeah i got thank you (laughs) thank you i've been sitting by the phone for months for this call (laughs) now i can exhale Uh, yeah so i hate that's just and i like eternal optimist that i am put that out of my mind and completely forgot that it ever happened so (laughs) Harvey, relentless, won't let it and has me go and see Naomi Campbell and Heidi Klum. And Heidi loves the idea and wants to be a part of it. And I think that's when the show really begins to be something that can be real. And her partners, uh, Desiree Gruber and Jane Shaw, who still executive produced the show, um, help uh, come up with... um, Michael episodic Kors. challenges they yeah they're like oh go and see michael kors people I, you know i couldn't have picked them out of a lineup right and now the show really begins yeah. to have some momentum and then we fly with um we're going to go to new york to pitch it actually this is a funny harvey story we decide for some reason we're going to pitch it at vh1 first and we go to um we go to the the mtv like headquarters and we're meeting judy mcgrath and with harvey and heidi klum and Judy is really sick and coughing and not like looking okay. And Harvey insists on chain smoking in her office and could care less. I thought you were say he brought her to a drugstore. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that was his thing. The yeah. opposite. We had business to get done. So he's like chain smoking. <laughs> She's coughing. I'm like pitching my little heart out. Um, at the end, we all leave. And Brian Graydon was in the meeting, calls like, you know, a day or two later to say, hey, we love it. We're not sure. We have, I think, like Divas coming on VH1. We're not sure if it's going to rate. So we'd like to wait, but let's, we'll order a pilot right now. And I called Harvey and I was like, Harvey, great news. You know, Brian's calling to order a pilot. And he's like, what? They're fucking us. And I was like, no, no, they're, no, they're, they're, it's, no, it's good. They're ordering a pilot. He was like, then why is he fucking us? And I was like, no, he's, it's, it's a good thing. He's like, well, he's fucking us. I was like, no, Brian's a really good guy. So we passed. Um, and wait, we, so how is he? Fu- well, I don't, in Harvey's mind, ordering a, a pilot is fucking him. Got it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, we don't do pilots. Magical thinking, by the way, works like a charm. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, we, That's yeah. going to be my new thing. I don't accept any pilots. Yeah. Pilot? Fuck you. You have right. to react horribly to <laughs> yeah. every offer unless it's and a I'll series. And I'll be smoking. Offer. Fuck yep. you. Yeah. Yep. Series or not. True 100. That's the brand. <laughs> oh, and then nice. you need snack well cookies as well mm. in between the series. Zero fat. Those yep. are so good. If you eat four boxes, though, it sort of cancels it out. We uh, we then booked a round of pitches and flew and we I flew to New York and our first meeting was a drama pitch with Harvey and Jeff Zucker and the runway pitches were going to be at the end of the week. But at the end of the drama meeting, Harvey was like, you know, Jeff was like, well, what else do you have? And Harvey's like, Eli, tell him about Project <laughs> Runway. So I pitch it to Jeff Zucker and Jeff Zucker slaps the table and was like, I'm buying that for um, I'm buying that for Bravo. Ten episodes on the air. Done. We're like, this is great. So we leave. I get a call a little while later saying, listen, can you just pitch Jeff Gaspin? Um, Don't worry. We bought the show, but just he should, you know, he needs to hear the pitch. It's his network. He should feel a part of it. So we get on the phone. We pitch Jeff Gaspin. It goes great. It doesn't get unsold. And he's like, listen, could you do me a favor? Could you just keep the meeting on the books at Bravo um, and just go in and have your pitch? And we said, sure. Um, With Francis? With... I don't remember who was there. Um, I remember, no, Amy Intercasso was there. Oh, yeah. um, maybe Francis. I don't think Francis was there. Amy was there. And a few other people were there. Yeah. Um, it was in New York. 
Um, and I remember Harvey's like, well, I'm not going to that. And, <laughs> and I got, and I remember like riding up in the elevator with Heidi Klum on my arm, knowing we had a 10 episode order and walking into the room to get to pitch that show. And it was, uh, that was a, that was a fun way to pitch. Like, well, this is already sold. It's going to go great. Did they know it was already sold? I think so. Okay. So it was just a formality. That was so. Project Runway. Incredible. I mean, not yeah. to, you know, I'm not just saying this, another show that I love, I, I mean, I might edit this out myself, but I have to say when it went, to, when we had the changing of the guard, it wasn't the same show. Not as good. Well, by the way. Yeah, sorry. Look, Dan and Jane and the Magical Elves yeah. do beautiful work to give credit where it's due. And that show maybe wouldn't be a hit, maybe wouldn't be anything like what it is today if they hadn't made it. And they, they changed it in their ways at the development stage and in making the, the first season. And yeah, I think, you know, I'd like to think that all of us have a style that we bring to the work we do and you notice when we're gone. It's probably why you didn't like this season of Project Greenlight. Right. I loved it. I wasn't there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, great story. I mean, I feel like I could talk about each of these things forever, but we have much to cover. So let's move on. Let's move on. So let's Aaron, circle, what did you let's, do? Let's circle back to Project Greenlight for one more anecdote. <laughs> we didn't talk about that enough. Let me tell you about the time that I was watching episode three, season two oh, from so my couch. Great story. Crazy great day. Story. Crazy great story. Day. Yeah. Toaster oven broke? Yeah. I love that yeah. story. Yeah. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast forward time a little bit. So Aaron goes to the films, commercial world. You realize... I left Miramax... I made a short film. I sold it to IFC back when they were buying short films and airing them. And actually, if you were a young filmmaker and you managed to make a movie and get it on TV, there was a lot of notoriety that came with that. And it brought me a lot of uh, short form commercial work. So I wrote big commercial campaigns, um, Reebok, Nike, Ikea, Bacardi, Discover Card, MTV, just working on really big campaigns, which for me, as a guy in his mid-20s who was just trying to sort of survive and make it in New York City, that was really exciting to kind of write stuff that was then going to air two weeks later that you could make real money on, but it wasn't satisfying because I had gone from working in movies where you get to try to tell a story over two hours to these 30 and 60 second spots where you get to do cool work and you get to do it really quickly and you get to make money, but it's not as satisfying from a storytelling perspective. So I decided to move to Los Angeles and then eventually I got into television around 2006. And was that then with Eli or what was that? No, um, I had, uh, I was still working, I still had one foot in the film world and I had written a screenplay that I decided I was, instead of hustling it around, I was going to direct it. So I wrote a really low budget movie and I gave it to a buddy of mine who I wanted to produce it and he gave it to his boss who at the time was David Eilenberg who was running development for Mark Burnett Productions. And I don't know why to this day that Dave read it, but Dave actually read my screenplay. Because he's a great guy. Because he's a great Love guy him. and actually a writer. Some people don't know that. Hope hmm. that's not a secret. And he called me and he said, hi, I'm Dave Eilenberg. And I was like, cool, who are you? And he said, I read your screenplay. And I was like, why? And he was like, and I really liked it. Why don't you come write... Mark uh, had teamed up with Jeffrey Katzenberg and DreamWorks Animation uh, to do these online projects to help promote Flushed Away, Shrek the Third, a whole series of titles that DreamWorks Animation was about to release. And so they needed, they had these sort of like online shows, sort of uh, tournaments, sweepstakes, and they needed someone to write and produce all this online content. And this was sort of, it was sort of like, it was still Internet 1.0, mm -hmm. and we, we were sort of like, what is this digital thing? And so it was actually kind of exciting to go and try to figure it out and hustle these sponsors and charge them a ton of money. And then you launch your website, and it's already in profit, and I give uh, Mark Burnett a lot of credit for it. Um, and then I transitioned from that to, well, at that point, then you have Mark Burnett on your resume, and you start getting phone calls to produce reality shows. So I became a freelance reality TV producer. Uh, because I was unable to make this independent film that I had written. So it was by accident, in a way. And like the best way to shorten the story is, and here we are doing this podcast. And <laughs> Ten years TV. later, never, All right. never made the movie, and here we are. You should Thanks. plug. You should plug your Kickstarter page for the movie. <laughs> so the name of the movie is. Um, but that that was really it, so. Uh, like I think a lot of people from 
I don't know, our generation ended up in unscripted, not on purpose, because yeah. how could you have? It didn't really exist. And I think a lot of people have those sorts of idiosyncratic stories. And um, and then talk about the way you guys got back together. So I had I knew that Eli was in, you know, working in non-scripted television. And I we had been I had since moved to L.A. and we had hung out a couple of times and I had said, hey, this reality thing's kind of fun. And you know, we would sort of uh, share stories and uh, about working in non-scripted television. Um, but I was still working in scripted. And I had directed a pilot for the now defunct Fox Television Studios. I guess it's Fox 21 now. Um, they had this uh, pilot they were making for Spike. And I directed that. And Eli had just opened Studio Lambert US with Stephen Lambert in 2008 2009 and we uh we had connected and he heard that i had directed this pilot and he had just sold something to mtv and he asked if i would direct that pilot and that was a non-scripted pilot for mtv it was sort of like freaks and geeks the reality show and so we started working together did he know um, what he was doing? Back he then. was great. I knew it. I had read his screenplay too, by the way, <laughs> um, and uh, and had recruited him to do this um, sort of strange pilot idea that I still love and never sold. Um, and but I knew that he was a talented filmmaker with a great sense of humor. And the thing we had sold to MTV was to Tony DeSanto as like our first <laughs> week or two in business. We went and had drinks, and I was like, I want to make a John Hughes movie as a reality show. These little nerds in the midwest it'll be really charming them going to school for the first time and they agreed and i thought god who's got the sensibility to make this thing and called aaron and actually it's amazing and we still once in a while play the casting reels we were really proud of the the project and the stuff he put on tape it was great it was really cute what eli <laughs> didn't tell me when he asked me to direct this pilot was that there was actually no staff and there was like no cast and he really just sort of secretly wanted me to put the whole thing together but uh which is pretty much the plan behind ipc Good segue. <laughs> <laughs> and that has worked out for the I last love seven years and then so then you guys so after that you basically joined studio lambert so just explain also what studio lambert is and how you got there studio lambert was a, uh, is uh is and was a, a production company we that was a startup in 2008 stephen lambert you know one of the most uh accomplished uh television producers and non-scripted there is and created wife swap and faking it and undercover boss and secret millionaire um steven had left rdf which is where and he had been there for years and helped uh make that put that company on the map and had decided to start from scratch and uh, all three media had agreed to back his startup um had given him seed capital and his business plan was he was going to start a production company in london where he would be based and he would sell shows and make them there but he also wanted to concurrently start um, a production company in the U.S. that would receive his formats and make them here. And if in their spare time they wanted to make their own shows, that was fine. And that's when I, I met Steven. Um, I had been, after about 10 years at Miramax, I ran Ashton Kutcher's company briefly. I then went out on my own for several years and sold a whole bunch of stuff, but learned a couple of incredibly valuable lessons. Um, one, I was just selling and laying things off to production companies, and I realized if I wanted the shows to look like they did in my head, it needed to be my own company uh, where I could really kind of control that. Um, and I meet Steven and he's got a blank check to start a production company. And he says, listen, build it however you like, um, run it, make whatever you want there, but keep me completely in the loop from London and make my shows my way. Um, and that, that sounded reasonable. And so I agreed to sort of like throw in with him um, and we launched this company together. Uh, that was September 08. We opened our doors. Actually, September 08, I think we're literally at a, um, a folding table in my apartment in Venice. Um, and we sold Undercover Boss in October. I remember Jeannie Newman was our attorney. And I asked Jeannie right when we started for some advice. Um, and she said, honey, you should really sell a network show before Thanksgiving. And I thought, like, great advice. What kind of advice? I was great, like, well, really should insightful. I, should I get like a scratch or a lottery ticket and win a lot? Is I hope that you wrote good? that down. Uh huh. Yeah. So, but but we did. But that you know, worked sure out. Enough, yeah. yeah, right before. So, Undercover Boss was a UK format mm -hmm. that Stephen had already produced, or he got what was Stephen? Stephen created. He came up with the idea, okay. sold it to Channel Four, and had gotten um uh, a. 
I think it was it was either a pilot or a uh, three episode order. Um, I think a pilot that then went forward. I'm not sure. In any event, they'd only started to film the first one. And out of those rushes, he had cut a, uh, a sizzle. And I think he had ignored my notes probably, which was the perfect thing to do to get it sold. And the two of us had gone and, uh, and pitched it together, uh, with Greg Lipstone. We'd gone all over the place and, um, and at CBS, Nina Tassler teared up in the room and loved it in order to pilot. How much changed? I always wonder, you know, I don't know if you guys ever saw, there's a documentary that the guy who created Everyone Loves Raymond made when he goes to Russia to oh, adapt yeah. it. So I always wonder, like, culturally, was there a lot that changed between the UK version and the US version? Not too much, okay. really. Um, actually, it was really, it was interesting. We, um, there there are some differences. Uh, and I remember Stephen came to town. British um, executives, um production company executives generally don't go to set. They don't go to location. They're in the Bay, but they don't go to set. Unlike, you know, here where we're, we're, we generally go to set. Um, so he didn't come out for the filming. Uh, he had a, he was very hands-on in selecting the showrunner and he would talk to us on the phone and he made sure that we got uh, a full download from the people who had, were shooting in the UK. Um, but then he just, then he came to LA to work on it and he went into um, a Bay with an editor and they were going to cut the um, the first act of, uh, and I remember as the door closed behind them, I remember well this is like this job is going to go in one of two ways because I don't have it in me to pretend when things are bad that they're good or to lie to people's faces. So I went like if he comes out with a shitty cut, that's all right. Well, that's how it's going down. And uh, so you and, didn't know you had good <coughs> stuff, like you didn't know. I knew what we filmed was really. I yeah. knew what we filmed was great, but I had no idea how, how he was going to be in the bay. I mean, you know, people are crazy. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So he comes out and he's like, and actually, it's 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 to his credit that he's got. Um, a sense of humility despite all of his accomplishment and like slightly bashfully said, I think it's ready. Do you want to come take a look? And it was great. I want to thank God this job's going to be all right. Did you know it was going to be hit? No idea. In fact, I remember his wife, we sold it to, we, so we got a pilot order at CBS and she's like, are you excited? And I was like, excited. Are you kidding me? Like most pilots don't get on the air and there's so much hard work to do. We go out we, and by the way, we made something like 2000 outgoing calls to get that show booked, to get waste management to agree. It was really really hard to book because no one knew what the show was and you asked about the difference between the british version and the american version the american version is like is um the companies generally come off pretty well the type of ceo right. that's willing to un go through that process um it's gonna reflect well on them for having participated the british one like they go after them and they sometimes look really bad and, and i remember they called us a couple seasons in they're like how are you able to cast these companies it's amazing and i was like well we you know we don't make them look like shit that's like um, part of I also plan. think there's something in the DNA of the idea, ironically, that is better suited to America and American audiences. That sort of, you know, there is no class system and anyone can make it. And the guy's going to come down from the castle and understand what the workers are doing. And everyone's going to kind of win at the end is a very kind of plays to the American dream in a way that the British class system only allows so much to kind of so I, I weirdly think that show is is almost more american in spirit than maybe maybe than maybe steven realized i agree i completely agree so she she was like are you excited the pilot i said no then we uh we got ordered she said are you excited and i was like look most of these things fail we got to get this thing booked we got to get it shot um and then we got the call saying it's gonna we're gonna put you behind the super bowl and she said are you excited now i was like yeah, i'm really <laughs> really excited now got that time slot yeah and was it a hit out of the gate? Out of the gate. Highest rated reality premiere of all time. 38.6 million viewers. Huge. But what do you do on that night, like the next day? That was an amazing, very <laughs> special night. So that it premiered behind the Super Bowl. And our eighth episode uh, was a company called GSI Commerce. And I had really hit it off with the boss. I generally thought of myself as like somewhat accomplished. I was pretty proud of what I had done. I had an ice cream sandwich in supermarkets. I came up with a couple of TV show ideas that were on the air. I, you know, wasn't starving to death. And so, and then I started meeting these like gazillionaires who are running these giant empires. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a failure. I can't believe I'm so lazy. And this one guy, um, Michael Rubin, we were making his episode and he has this incredibly quick brain for business. And as we were driving to location one day, he's like, break down the economics of the show. He's like, all right, break down the economics of the of, uh, of, of, of your company. He's like, all right, well, break down your deal. And he was like, well, why are you working for Bubkiss? And by the way, I was thrilled with my deal. And it turned out great. I'm still thrilled with it. But to him, it was Bubkiss. Um, 
Well, that that guy, uh, we 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 became friends, and um, and he invited Stephen and I to the Super Bowl. He gets a ton of Super Bowl tickets because he's his company does uh, hand, runs NFL store and run, does a lot of sports merchandise. Um, I bring him up because he's one of the key investors in our new company. But so the night of Undercover Boss, Stephen Lambert, I brought my dad. Stephen brought his son. We were on um, the first row of the 50 yard line for the saints victory right after katrina and it was an extraordinary experience we then got shuttled out in like limo buses straight to a private plane i don't think my dad had ever been on a private plane before um and flew to new york still celebrating and landed and wait and went right to the opening the uh friends and family opening of the meatball shop my little brother's restaurant and i remember looking at my dad that was all that was all right you know the same sort of day and i remember looking at my dad sitting at the bar and he was feeling very proud of his sons it was a special special we just call that cavelling yes (laughs) (laughs) in his case he was like the meatballs they could have more flavor (laughs) and i thought undercover boss was okay (laughs) how come your name wasn't on first (laughs) i love it never good enough that's a good story. So were you, Aaron, were you working on Undercover Boss at that point also? Were you so show this, running it? This, yes. This, this, uh, no, I was not show running Undercover Boss. I was show running this MTV pilot while the Undercover Boss pilot was being made, mm-hmm. which was kind of, it's actually kind of interesting for me because it was like the redheaded stepchild, not, not on purpose, but it was this tiny little MTV project while everyone was running around making the big network pilot. But we, t- we, we loved what we put together. We turned it in. MTV is sort of hemming and hawing about what to do, whether to pick it up, whether to change it and pick it up, not sure. And Eli said, well, stick around and go work on this show called Undercover Boss. It hadn't aired yet. And so we, they were still making episodes in season one. So I went on to that show and started producing that show, mostly in post, uh, sort of the later episodes. And so then after... I, I, I maybe maybe you didn't know that Undercover Boss was going to be a hit and maybe a lot of people didn't know. But the people, if you're, you know, if you're watching all this footage and you're watching raw footage and you're tearing up, you know that you're sitting on something kind of special. And so there was a feeling amongst the freelancers that this was a very special project, whether it would be a hit or not was maybe impossible to tell. But you knew that you were sort of making something cool that you were proud of. And so I had just sort of reached a point where I didn't really want to freelance anymore. And I sort of felt like, hey, this Studio Lambert thing and this little show called Undercover Boss, maybe that'll do well. And so I went to Eli and I was like, you know, um, if season one does well and they order a second cycle, this company is going to be sort of more of a real company. You might need executives because it was literally it was like Eli, his assistant and an EIC and Stephen in London. And Eli was like, oh, sure. Interesting. I not really Maybe I hadn't considured that, or maybe you had, and you nope, were playing had dumb. Had not even <laughs> he was on too me busy working on the show. Yeah, I, was I was like, like... "You're going to be able to sell a lot of stuff yeah. behind Undercover Boss." P.S. You're going to need a current programming person to, right. to 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 oversee the show itself. Um, and so I'd sort of planted that seed, and when Cycle Two was picked up, we started having very um, serious conversations about it. And, you then know, I, and then I joined the company as head of development and current programming. And what year was that? 2010. Okay. So, you know, it just occurs to me before we move on that I'm just thinking Project Greenlight, Project Runway, Undercover Boss, like all really good quality reality shows because we've all worked, or I don't know if you guys, I mean, I've worked on a lot of shit, you know, and there's so much shit that's out there. And those are all like aspirational, inspirational, high quality, not exploitive. And like, that's pretty amazing to be able to have those kinds of... Is this a bad time to mention that I was supervising <laughs> producer of Bridezilla season five? By the way... Because I'm very proud of that season. It was the highest rated show on We that year. Love that show. Yeah. I still am confused by it. That's a whole other... I need to find out like who these women are because that's a whole other question. Like, really? Um, They're good podcast. shows. We've been, we've been lucky to work Amazing. on some, some really good shows. I hope they reflect our taste and our values. Um... We pay the bills like everybody else, and we've made a whole range of shows. Right. You learn as much from the stinkers as you do from the good ones that people yeah. like. Um, uh, I, I joke and say, like, my cut never airs. The ones I like best aren't on the air anymore. But, um, but yeah, no, we've been lucky. We've made some some good stuff. So when did All 3 Media buy Studio Lambert? So we it was a really 
cool, amazing run. Steven had been incredibly successful at RDF. I knew that someday I would want to start my own company. I had made a, an attempt at that um, when I had left uh, Catalyst, Ashton Kutcher's company, and for three years had sold stuff and then decided to retrench. And one of the reasons I took the job with Steven is I thought, here's this guy really fired up, kind of in his prime professionally, um, fired up to be successful. And I'm going to watch and learn as we build a company from the ground up and, you know, take and, and take notes. Um, we was, it was backed by all three from the very beginning. And the way the deal with all three worked was, um, we, the founders owned a certain amount of stock in the company, all three in exchange for giving us the financing for the business owned a certain amount of stock and all three was required to buy us out. And we were required to get bought out at the end of five or six years. That was our one choice. We could decide whether it was year five or year six. Our best year, Aaron and I, we had, we had 10 series at Studio Lambert USA, two of which were British imports and eight were, were things that we originated. Um, and that was when um, all three dis- decided to buy us out. Um, and we had come up with this interesting business model for them. They were looking at the success of our U.S. operation and thinking that if they opened U.S. offices for all of the other all three companies, how much more successful maybe would the whole company be? And we, we saw some flaws in that thinking. That's a, that's a lot of redundancy in terms of uh, executives and capabilities and equipment. All of those companies are going to start from scratch in terms of precedent with the networks and earning their trust. Um, and just to explain, because those are all companies that are international companies that then are British. basically startups yeah. once they come to the U.S. and you exactly. have a new team. You start exactly. Over. And right. so we said, and you know, maybe it was a little self-serving. Um, we we came up with this alternate model, which was, uh, listen, all three is going to buy us out anyway. Change our name to All Three Media America. We will produce. Uh, not just on behalf of Studio Lambert, but for all of the all three companies. Naturally, we'll need some investment to grow our capability, more bays, more staff, but a lot less money than you would need to open 10 more standalone companies. Um, and all three agreed to do that uh, and um, and launched All Three Media America, I think in 2000 and, oh, I don't know. They what, did that a couple of years What ago. could go wrong? What could but go wait a minute, wrong? Wait, wait, wait. Great plan. Yeah. I'm completely right because that ended up happening, though. That, yes, right. That all of those. That's companies... exactly what they did. We yep. opened. We they they bought us out, and Stephen and I and Aaron all of us signed new deals now as all three Media America employees, where we would now produce on behalf of all of the companies on the group. We, uh, Zoo moved in, Maverick moved in, and we uh, launched. Um, Objective and Lime and MME, MME uh, and 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 several other uh, and that weird German one. That's MME. That's MME oh, okay. from <laughs> Yep, that's the weird German one. <laughs> Sorry. Super weird. Well, all, no, all the great. German ones are weird, right? So weird. Uh, but yeah, no, we so we did that, and that was that was about three years ago or so, um, and and uh, and it was a, it was a, an interesting transition. It, yeah, because was... you became more of a sort of overall executive and less in the trenches. Aaron, you still were kind of more in the trenches. Yeah, I, I was I was largely a, a creative executive. The interesting thing, at least as it relates to me and Eli, is that we went from making all these shows together to suddenly now being somewhat separated. You know, it was sort of... Uh, you missed painful. each other. Was, we, I, I longed for him. <laughs> I would press um, myself against the glass and look into his I missed office his scent. and just try to, try to get his, his attention. Musk. Well, um, I think what strikes me is like, you know, I mean, I met Eli first. It's like, you're a producer. You know, you're a creative at heart. And I think when you take a creator and a producer and put them, it's like taking the, you know, the lion out of the jungle and, and putting them in the zoo. It's like... It's a different hat to be an executive and to be overseeing and to be worrying about bottom lines and budgets and not figuring out formats as much. And maybe I'm overstepping. Maybe you were doing all that stuff also. I yeah, I agree and I disagree. Okay. I I like um, art, craft, and business, and I like each of them uh, to balance the others. Mm-hmm. With just art, uh, it's too ethereal. Right. With just business, it's a little soulless and. Craft can be uh, a bit by rote at, at, at a point. At a point, but when you when you're blending the three and striking a balance, it's fascinating. I love doing the business stuff. Um, I love being an executive. Um, what I don't love is being a part of um, a, a very large organization that where what I'm doing is 
maybe not central to the what the company itself needs or what it's thinking about. And as a result, my job suddenly, everything slows down. I'm part of a bigger bureaucracy. And that's just my personality type. And it's funny, I grew up, and this is a terrible thing to admit, but I'll just beg you to take this down when I start applying for these jobs. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I grew up planning to be a studio chief, and I have a collection of movie mogul books. You probably saw them in yeah. my office. Yeah. And network president books, and like you name them, I can you know, bore you to tears about their, you know, their, how they grew up and their first jobs. Um, and that was, that's where I've had my sights set yeah. all these years. But the closer I got to that, the more I realized I actually didn't like it. And... Um, and I, I didn't love it. I think if it was my own shop, I would love it. If it was, you know, if I was running a giant division and somewhat left alone to run it as I see fit, I think I would love it. But to have to call up to headquarters and ask and wait for them to have, you know, to give me an answer, I'm probably not the best guy for that kind of job. Um, I got the it. truth is we were also just trying to figure out what all three media America was. Yeah. And it took a couple of years. We spent first of all, as soon as we launched the company, we started producing the million second quiz for NBC. So we're working on this giant, massive live experiment thing that none of us had ever done before, which sort of sucked up all of the creative oxygen while launching all three America, while hiring all these Americans and figuring out how all the deals are going to work and how to get them up and running and carting them around to the different buyers to make those introductions. So I think our roles were changing in ways that we just weren't certain of yet. And I was, I went from, you know, running creative to helping these other companies get started, but then needing to pivot back to the thing that got us there. And the thing that got us there was coming up with great TV shows and producing them. And so it was almost a distraction to set up the company and to then figure out what your new role was. By the time I figured out my role was, oh, okay, just go back to the thing you were doing two years previous, it was it was less fun. And I wasn't really able to collaborate with Eli on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I think that you know, there is... For me, the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is the creative. Yeah. It really is. It's that passion. It's putting that right piece of music underneath that montage that you know is going to make the viewer just feel a certain way. And it's it's honestly, it's having the sort of the power and, and, and hopefully the talent to be able to do that, to move people emotionally. And if that's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning then you have to be in the right environment to do your best work. You have to be sort of properly motivated and inspired um, as sort of bohemian as, and, and silly as that may sound. And so that really matters. Like the culture of the company and who you're working with and what that vibe is like, is just, it's everything um, to, a, to, a, to a real creative. So I'm sort of imagining you guys, you know, toward the end hatching a plan, like we got to start over here, we got to break out on our own and, and we create the magic. Yeah, there was a bit of that. There, there was, was a bit of that though. I have to say, you know, the low flame theory where you're like, you don't, you're just slowly being burned, but you don't realize it because <laughs> the flame's low. Like I just had conditioned myself to not having as much fun. And you're, you're trying to hit these numbers and things had gotten a little more corporate, understandably so. So I'm not sure that, I think Eli maybe realized it before I did, because your job had more fundamentally changed than mine. I also had a deadline that I was staring at, which is I, I had signed a really long deal when we launched the new company. And I, I had, um, I thought I was trying to be clever. And I thought what was going to happen was I knew that they wanted to sell all three. And I figured I'll sign this really long deal. They'll sell it to like Fremantle and Tom Beers will fire me. And I'll get this giant settlement check. The dream of getting fired. I was like, oh my that's, God. I, that's what I'm aiming for. Yeah, I was like, this is, I'm, I'm like, I, and I finally <laughs> pulled it off. And the day I signed that deal, I went to lunch with my friend Rob Lee. And I'm like boasting about this amazing strip plan of mine. And he looked at me and he was like, Eli, you're a good executive. Like, they're not going to fire you. They're going to have you work. And I was like, Damn it! <laughs> the one thing I hadn't counted. I didn't. I hadn't you should have pushed that. that lunch four times. <laughs> exactly. so you had had that before you signed. So, uh, 
So my my one opportunity to leave, you know, to me, honoring your commitments is incredibly important. If I sign a deal, I'm going to stick by it. If I give you my word, you know, I don't care if now it means I'm going to lose a bunch of money or whatever. We're going to do whatever we said we were going to do. Um, and but in the deal, there was this one clause that let me leave at one point under certain circumstances. And those circumstances came to pass. And so I had a decision to make. I needed to either exercise and leave or I needed to decide to stay. Um, and look, I love all three. I love the team that we built. I'm incredibly proud of that uh, operation, the culture there. There was once a time when we were doing a postmortem on a show, trying to figure out what had gone wrong. And each person in turn interrupted the next to say, no, it was my fault. Here's what I did wrong. Instead of finger pointing and, and laying blame. It's just, it's a, it was a, it's a really cool shop. And and so, you know, and I felt a lot of, you know, we started at my dinner table and then we were at 50,000 square feet with, you know, 50 bays and, a, and an operation. We made 20 series, but the space was designed to make 30. And so we, we I felt a real sense of pride in it. And um, so it was, it was a tough decision to leave. Um, but I found that the journey to 20 series was more fun than the destination. And I missed just being creative. And we were making the 7.5 on the side at the time. And because we're so happy we're there, <laughs> great waiting. transition. And uh, great that transition. was a passion project of mine. I'll tell you a little bit so about the, how it got started in yeah. a second. But um, what I found is we were editing that film, and that was me and Aaron and our director Tiller and a uh, great editor named James Carroll. Um, was every time I'd leave my office, and like it's a big fancy office, and around town, all of my colleagues in the industry are like clapping me on the back for this great job that I've got, and we're on the like most powerful list, and it's it's like, it's cool, it's great, it's great dough, and like I have nothing to complain about, but I notice that when I'm in this dark little room eating crappy old potato chips, um, I'm smiling ear to ear, and I'm having a great time, and I realize like, oh, this is what I love to do. And I miss it, and I want to get back to it. Um, and so uh, I decided it was time to trigger that clause and go start a new company. Um, I, I loved building the last company. It was so fun. When you have 20 series, getting the 21st one is like, all right, well, I guess we're that much closer to making our numbers, and we're not going to have to lay off those people. We're not going to have to like sublet the offices. Okay, great. It's not fun. It's just like... When you have no series and you get one, like we have these like weird champagne bongs in the office at someone. Shambongs. And like, have you heard you of these? Party. No, but I need to have our one. head of production bought these shambongs. We got our first A and E series, and it, we were like, Rachel Dax like, was like, "We're doing champagne bong hits," and you're like, cheering. You know, send one over. It's fun. I like everything about that. <laughs> it's fun being little. It's yeah. fun growing it's exciting. big. And that feel, it's like you're back to the beginning. Yeah. So that it was time, and so. That's what brings us here. Okay, good. All right. I know, I feel like we're going to have to do a two-parter on this one because I feel like we have to talk about the 7-5 now. Great. So I'm just going to set it up. So the 7-5 is a documentary that these guys did while they were still working at All 3 Media, which I have to find out how the hell you had time for that, about um, a 75th precinct in Brooklyn back in the 80s uh, that was extremely corrupt and centered on this one guy, Mike Dowd, who was pretty much the worst of the worst in terms of corruption and all so you have to see it, so I won't spoil anything else. But um, the exciting thing is not only was it incredibly well received, but it's now being made into a feature film as well. And uh, I mean, it's just I love documentaries, and I'm pretty Thank tough. You. I'm a pretty tough critic, and and it was just so compelling. Thank you. And you guys did an incredible job. And literally, my first question I wrote down last night was, "When did you make this? Like how? <laughs> I, like that is a full time job." Well, we spent three years making the okay. movie. So how did it come about? I grew up in New York City. Right. And I followed that story when it broke. And uh, on New York One, the local news yeah. station in Pack New York, York uh, <laughs> they um, they aired these hearings This in, into when they busted Michael Dad. It was a huge scandal. And Mayor Dinkins impaneled the Mullen Commission that was going to look into corruption in the city. And so you had all these amazing New York characters, these cops, testifying about what they had done. And I stayed home from school to watch it because it was so cool. And I never forgot it. And I always thought, hey, that'll make a cool movie. And I've had that filed away in my head for 20 years. And um, a couple of years ago, I loved Cocaine Cowboys, that documentary. And I remember about, I think like a year or two after that movie came out, 
someone decided, hey, that would be a great remake, and they went to do it. Um, but the guys who made the film didn't have the life rights to the participants. And so when there was a bidding war suddenly, some people grabbed life rights, some people grabbed the film rights, and it was a bit of a mess. But a light bulb went off for me, and I thought, you know, with the tools we have at our disposal, we're a pro reality production company, we could go make a documentary out of this story about these cops at the 7-5 and then use that um, to set up the feature film. And we have a doc that we, you know, that we could exploit as well. Um, and so I used to test my assistants and I would say, listen, if you want extra credit, you want to impress me, New York 1, 1990, I don't know, 2, 1991, somewhere in there, the Mullen Commission, get me the footage. And like, they never did. And like, <laughs> one, the like worst one, no offense, um, she like, fi she finds not the actual footage, but there's this 10 year anniversary of the Mullen Commission mention once and it's like it's the 10 year anniversary of the Mullen Commission and blah blah it's like a two minute clip or something and then there's one clip of the hearings and it's that moment where Michael Dowd gets asked Mr. Dowd do you consider yourself a New York City cop or a drug dealer and he's got to pause and talk to yeah. his lawyer for I remember a the answer right. and then he turns back and he's like both <laughs> and so i like Honest. showed it to aaron all excited i'm like yeah. aaron check this, this out is how it, cool right. is this and aaron looks at me like i'm an idiot and he was like eli why are you having your assistants do this like we're a real company with a real budget like i'll hire us a researcher all the footage will be on your desk on monday and that had never it crossed my mind. It was incredibly easy to right. locate. By Monday, you the had the entire. Well, it was thirty-three yeah. hours of footage, you just and it was it was uh, it was actually at ABC hey. New York local, and uh, we got all the footage in. And I, you know, it we thought it was probably a documentary, but we weren't like hundred, a hundred percent sure. But we watched thirty-three hours of footage and started to think about, okay, how are you going to put this together? I mean, it wasn't even yes. We assumed it was probably Mike Dowd's story, but that wasn't even a given. I mean, we were just starting huh. with the Mullen Commission and yeah. seeing, like, okay, how do we put this together narratively? True. There were other corrupt cops whose stories I still remember watching, and I was like, oh, so somewhere in here is that uh, that um, is 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 the is the movie. Um, was it hard to get the participants on board? We should give a lot of credit to Tiller Russell. Yes. We were making a show for Discovery at the and time. And David Holthouse. And David Holthouse. We were making a, a show for Discovery at the time. And a guy named Tiller Russell was working on it. And the show was, uh, it was called Outlaw Empires. Mm -hmm. And it was, we, we did it with Kurt Sutter. And it was these, right. each one was a doc episode of a criminal, a real criminal organization that required you to go track down these, like, the real Gambinos, the real Hells Angels, the real Aryan Brotherhood, the real Crips, the real um, so on and so forth. And... That, and Tiller was doing that, and he was interviewing these guys. And he comes to us. I guess he got wind in the building that we were planning to make this movie. <laughs> yes. And maybe you know how no, that Well, he, that, that is sort of... I had hired Tiller on, on Outlaw Empires. He wasn't even the showrunner. Um, and it was, a we, it was a weird kind of hire because it was a cold call from his manager. Like, hey, I've got this field producer, and you should put him on this show. Um, but as soon as he was in the building, he sort of seemed set apart from the other reality producers, had more of a narrative flair, more yeah. of a, a real documentary background. And he came into the office while I was combing through the footage. And he was like, what is that? And I was like, you know what? Let me, I don't want to show you like the raw. Let me show you the like edited five minute clip that will kind of give you all the highlights. And he was immediately hooked. And he was like, I want to make that movie um, that you guys are going to make. And that was a real interesting journey for Tiller because it wasn't sort of the obvious choice. At first it was, hey, should we be looking at these you know, A-list doc directors. And I think Steven at one point was like, we'll get a BAFTA award-winning director <laughs> right. and he should do that. And Eli, of course, I think smartly had a real strong point of view about, about the project creatively and, of course, wanted to have the fun of actually making it, even though we were sort of simultaneously running this company. But I said to Tiller look, the best way to win this job is to just start doing it. Yeah. And so he, we had like breaking off a little bit of money for like a research phase. And he and this journalist, David Holthouse, that he knew started reaching out to these guys to see if they would participate um, and sort of started putting the movie together. Prior to that, I had gone to Steven 
because I had always thought of this as my personal project. Yeah. And I didn't want to put it into the company because then it becomes the company's project. Yeah, I was wondering. And so I, but I, I was so excited when Aaron had this idea about hiring a researcher. Um, but I guess one of the reasons I had never thought of it. Genius. Honestly, no wonder genius. he has you. Yeah. 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 Uh, hire people. I was like, but the other reason I hadn't, even allowed myself to consider that as I didn't want to spend the company's money because right. as soon as I've done that right. the company has a claim to it right. so I called Steven and I was like listen there's this project I don't think it's worth anything but it's my thing and I love it yeah. and um, and he was like I don't worry about it it's yours I don't care and he was like but if you want to make it at the company that sounds great Make what, we'll give you whatever deal you want on it he's like but we don't pay for content we get networks to pay for it he's like why don't you get one of your undercover boss friends to make it and I said pay for it I went oh that's interesting and we were now in season two, and I had just met a wonderful undercover boss named Sheldon Yellen. And fascinating man um, with a really, really cool business called Belfour that does insurance reconstruction there. Any disaster anywhere in the world, their company is the first in, boots on the ground, fixing it. It's incredible. Um, and Sheldon loved his undercover boss experience. And he had called me, and he was like, I caught the bug. I love this. I love what you do. How can I do more? And I said, well, funny you should ask, Sheldon. You could just pay for this feature documentary. It's probably going to lose you a million dollars, but here's my plan. Uh, and here's how it would work. And he said, okay, I'm in. So we now had a million bucks. We could hire, you know, a, a right. really good, you know, right. a, an accomplished director. Um, but selfishly, I'm used to being the executive producer who has a lot of editorial input in, a, in, a, in, in the projects that we work on. Obviously, collaborating with really talented people, oftentimes getting out of the best ones way and just leaving them alone. But some, you know, but, but contributing to. And I wanted that voice. I didn't want some director telling me, cool, now leave me alone. I'm going to go make, you know. And so that was another reason that Tiller was, was an attractive option for us. And he was... And he was so damn passionate. So, yeah, Aaron's right. We we convinced, I first convinced Sheldon, I was like, listen, if we don't have Michael Dowd, there's no movie. Right. Then I realized, wait a minute, what if Dowd says no? Now I'm like, screwed us. So I called <laughs> Sheldon back. I was like, wait, 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 forget that I said that. Yeah. We are good. The way we're going to get Dowd is we just got to start. We just have to tell him we're making the movie right, anyway. Right. Dowd was the last to come on board. He and was it, reluctant? Very reluctant, and Eli is right. It was a pro. It was getting. It's kind of like the way you. Do, the more we made the movie and we learned how the feds actually ultimately cracked that case, it's kind of like the way you put a doc together with resistant subjects. Yeah. Like we were like, well, your friends are gonna go on camera and they're gonna tell us their stories. So if you only want their version to be told, and that kind of worked. They Tiller and David and you know we got everybody else in the movie to say yes, and then finally Dowd said he was in, but he was the last one in. And Tiller also said, hey, this is the story of Michael Dowd. Like I know yeah. he's like I know it's the Mullen Commission. Yeah. He's like for you guys, but like he let me it. let me let me tell you what story is in here that I think should be the movie. And we were like, yeah, you're right. Let's Absolutely. Do that. Yeah. What was the craziest thing that happened during the making of it, or was there a moment when you thought, uh oh, like, or was it just smooth? There sailing? were a lot. You know, there were there were a couple. I mean, I, I don't know a how crazy the stories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're dealing with drug lords. I mean, not to give too much away, but I would be scared shitless to interview some of those people. That was interesting. Um, the, and the one guy who looked like Fred Armisen in disguise. <laughs> we did send a crew to the Dominican Republic to. Oh, by the way, the thing that convinced us to, to work with Tiller yeah. was um, we were make we were doing a Russian mob episode of that Discovery show, and the guy that we wanted to interview, the like linchpin of the episode, was in jail in Panama, <laughs> and Tiller had flown down to interview him, and when he gets there, the guy's like, "Listen, I'm sorry, I got a call from Moscow. I'm out." And Tiller calls us and he's like, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to scream at this motherfucker. I'm going to mad dog him I'm gonna and he's going to agree. And, and we're like, I don't know, Tiller, like, be careful. <laughs> oh, and there was a riot in the prison. Riot There's a the riot prison. going on in the prison while our guys are in there trying to get this interview for this Fakakta Discovery show. <laughs> and a, and a, like a, a pneumonia epidemic. And the guy is like... Who are you threatening me? He's like, it's sixty dollars to have you killed. Like, what are you? I'll doing? have you murdered by the time you 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 try to leave the prison. Tiller, to his credit, calls us up and he's like, "All right, what do you want me to do? I think I'm going to go back there tomorrow." We were like, "Let's just scrub this episode. Get the hell out of there. Please <laughs> get on a plane and yeah. come yeah. home, and we'll talk instead. about the seven five. Tiller, not a Jewish boy. No, <laughs> no. So, but that was like, we're like, man, this guy, he's got, he's got, you know, sort of balls of steel. So yeah. that that was exciting in the yeah. beginning. That was in the the things that were the most exciting, the first screening of the first, what was supposed to be a string out of the whole film, but Tiller and, and the first editor, great, uh, Chad um, Beck? 
Yes. Was um, they had kind of gone off the reservation and they're like, instead of having strung out the whole film, they've like fine cut the first two acts and they're great. And we're so excited. Um, but then for a long time, the movie wasn't good. And for a while we thought maybe it can't be good and maybe we're wrong and maybe it's this weird feathered fish and we just kept cutting and kept cutting and um, and it's weird, you know, we're used to being, having at least a network to blame, be like, oh, these guys and their <laughs> dumb notes, you know, it'd be so awesome. Just we we would money. just nail this if right. they would just screw off. Um, but actually, we're like, actually, we're all alone here. We have no one to blame and it's just not good. Because you weren't finding the story? or We like, weren't finding the story. We weren't finding the, like, the soul of the movie. Like, yeah. you, you know, you want everything to be sort of greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And what we had for a long time were these great sort of episodic moments, these yeah. great scenes, but the like the soul wasn't there. I mean, and to me, didn't... Kenny's the soul of the movie. And we made that choice. Right. Ultimately, yeah. that was the choice that uh, that answered. He's that the one that has the arc. The yeah. yeah. We um we and we applied to Sundance early with an early early cut, um and we we gave the film also to some of the top doc sellers, and they called us back and they were like, listen, there's a lot of great stuff here. But we got to tell you, kind of feels like reality TV, Ooh. which was such a like, what an insult, punch to the gut. I was actually. like, oh my god, we is my actually insulted. I was like, Believe my palate has gone off after all these years in television. Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> but it also like fired us up to yeah. prove them to prove them wrong. Right, Aaron. Another crazy moment for me anyway was we've now been cutting for like two years. We're like a million dollars in mm -hmm. the bag. What on earth are we gonna do? It don't. I've now realized that actually the economics of Docs are like way tougher than I realized when <laughs> right. I convinced Sheldon to I. do e. it. I.e. bad. Right. And, like, and has this, Sheldon seen anything? He's seen he's... it, but he's like, you guys are geniuses. I love it. it. I'm out of here. Let me know when to show up to the premiere. Oh, God, so, I have to meet Sheldon immediately. He's amazing. He's and, great. And he so podcasts? He's, he's another key backer of our company. So we, uh, but another crazy moment is Aaron was like, I have an idea. I have a really talented documentary filmmaker friend and he's going to come to the bay and watch the current cut and this is like cut 134 and i'm not exaggerating wow and I, we're like okay and so he comes he edited in for two years wow. he comes in and is this someone with a name like that we would know or i don't think so okay um and so but within the documentary community okay he's, he's a big deal someone a, a mountain, a mountain <laughs> so he comes in it's the tallest pygmy we screen the movie and it ends and he's like we turn to him expectantly and he's like, yeah, you don't have it. Uh, it's not there. And he's like, you know, actually, when you think about it, most great docs are really a filmmaker's journey. And you haven't gone on enough of a journey. You know, you have all these corrupt cops in the 80s when they were rookies. Now what you probably need to do is go back into production and follow some corrupt cops, you know, some new rookie cops at the 7-5 Precinct today. Follow them for a year and see where you, the journey takes you. And we were like, fuck that. <laughs> That's the worst idea. We're like, we're, no, props I, your I, friend, I, but like I was sort of like, thank you, thank you for coming. We will still validate your parking. That's about Barely. it. But that was a low moment. Like, you. Jesus Christ, we just blew a million dollars in all this time. What, and what the movie he did isn't what good. he didn't identify though is that we didn't have I mean right. his solution was completely wrong, but it was, we sort of needed to hear that, like, okay, we didn't really have it. Yeah. Because, and, you know, we're we're our own toughest critics. Yeah. So we just, honestly, we just went as long as we could until we were really, truly out of money. And the film felt like, okay, it's finally a movie. But there were some very talented people that came in toward the end that really helped us find that. Pri the, the second editor who came on, James Carroll, was was instrumental, I would say, in finding that, in plotting the twist without giving too much away, yeah. and f and plotting that relationship between Mike and Kenny, because ultimately that becomes the soul Absolutely. of the movie. Believe it or not, that wasn't so obvious. Not until the last six months of editing did that sort of come into focus. Yeah, and that was the movie. I mean, and that ultimately becomes the movie. Absolutely. And you can tell the larger story of New York and the crack cocaine all from that relationship. That was part one of my chat with Eli and Aaron. And I want to mention that their documentary, The 7-5, is playing on Showtime right now. And you can get it on Showtime On Demand. And it is coming to Netflix soon as well. So next week, we'll talk all about their new company, the IPC, how it came together, and what they're doing to distinguish themselves in what's a crowded marketplace. They've got some more great stories and very astute insights about the business. So hope you'll stay tuned for part two next Tuesday.